play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, the show where celebrities share stories about the foods they love most, and we dig into the history, culture, and science of those meals with experts from around the world. Today on the program, Duff Goldman. Duff has been a host and judge on some of the Food Network's most popular shows. He's the owner of Baltimore's Charm City Cakes, where he's created cakes for events like President Obama's inauguration and Tony Bennett's birthday party. He's also a New York Times bestselling author, and his new cookbook is called Super Good Cookies for Kids. When I started researching Duff, the very first thing I learned is that the name of his hometown is the name of a food. And it is a ridiculous name for a town. I googled towns with food names, and it turns out there are so many and they are all ridiculous, and I love every single one of them. So you can bet your sweet bippy I'm gonna share some of those town names with you in the first segment of the show. And Duff has baked thousands of cakes. So when it came to his own wedding in 2019, he wanted to do something special. The bride and groom were made out of hot dogs, and their clothes (laughs) were, were, were deli meat. So like my wife's, like her dress was like sliced turkey. My tuxedo was salami. We'll learn the fascinating history of wedding cakes with Claire Stewart, author of As Long As We Both Shall Eat, a history of wedding food and feasts. All of that is coming up, but first, my conversation with Duff Goldman. Let's start with the most important thing. Please tell me the town that you grew up in and the high school you graduated from. Uh, So I grew up in Sandwich, Massachusetts, uh, I graduated from Sandwich High School, and all the cops in town, their cop cars said Sandwich Police. <laughs> I just love it so much. Were you all just used to it, or was it just a constant sandwich jokes and sandwich talk? There wasn't. There wasn't. It wasn't like, it wasn't, it really wasn't a thing. Like, my last job in high school was um, this, like, you know, kind of crappy pizza joint called Sandwich Pizza. Uh-huh. And... Like, nobody was like, oh, do they make sandwiches out of pizza? Like, it was like, no, it's the pizza place in Sandwich. It's a small town. Was There's there a, three stoplights. Was there a place called Sandwich, Sandwiches, Sandwiches? I, I'm, I wish I could tell you this without you thinking that I'm lying. But <laughs> literally across the street from Sandwich Pizza, across the street was Sandwiches, Sandwiches. <laughs> uh, my... Ex-boyfriend's dad's ex-girlfriend's last name was Pancake. We could not get over this. I mean, the puns, it was always like, did they meet surreptitiously? Is she stacked? They butter get married. Like, endless. <laughs> oh, man. That is hilarious. <laughs> but they broke up. great last name. Such a great last name. Oh, that's too bad. Everyone wants to know, well... Do you eat a lot of sandwiches? Like, what goes on in Town Sandwich? It is a very kind of silly name for a town. That's Christine Ross, director of the Sandwich Chamber of Commerce. She says Sandwich was the first established town in Cape Cod, and its name originated from its sister city, Sandwich, in Kent, England. 
Now, they don't do a lot of sandwichy stuff in Sandwich, but every year, local restaurants compete to win Best Sandwich at Sandwich Fest. Is there, like, an official sandwich of sandwich? There really isn't, though a lot of people try to kind of claim that if they've won the best sandwich in Sandwich, um, it's definitely something that everyone markets. It's definitely for huge bragging rights. Okay, so that's Sandwich, Massachusetts, but there are so many other towns, most of them teeny, teeny, tiny, with like population six people, with fun, silly food names. There is Cookie Town, Oklahoma, and Burnt Corn, Alabama. And then there are the breakfast towns, Hot Coffee, Mississippi, Toast, North Carolina, Bacon, Washington, Cereal, Pennsylvania. But my personal favorite is Ding Dong, Texas. And then there is Two Egg, Florida. It's a fun place to visit. There's not much more there than a highway sign, but people stop and pose by the sign. We believe it to be the most stolen highway sign in the state of Florida because people (laughs) tend to make off with it. You know, it's a legendary place. That's Dale Cox. I'm a historian and I live in Two Egg, Florida. So tell me a little bit about the town. You know, how many people live there? It's a very rural community. Probably the largest crop there is an agricultural area is peanuts population in the actual little community itself, maybe 25 or 30. Most famous resident who was born there was is the Academy Award winning actress Faye Dunaway. What is your favorite thing to do with two eggs? So I do a two egg omelet. That is my favorite thing to do with two eggs. But everyone has two egg recipes that go back probably to our grandparents or great grandparents. And they all brag about their two egg recipes and stuff. Anything that comes to mind? Scrambled eggs, uh, two eggs over easy. And so those are very popular. Different people keep threatening to make a two egg recipe book, but no one has yet. So if anyone listening wants to publish the official two egg cookbook filled with generations of recipes for scrambled eggs, two egg omelets, two hard boiled eggs, please get in touch. For 10 seasons, Duff had a reality show on the Food Network called Ace of Cakes. It chronicled the daily operations at his bakery, Charm City Cakes. He and his crew used blow torches and power saws to create incredible, lifelike, sometimes gigantic cakes, like a replica of Radio City Music Hall for the Rockettes, or a cake that looks exactly like a bucket of KFC fried chicken. I'm curious because, you know, you were working in the restaurant industry since you were 14, and then you went and did your whole fancy culinary school experience. You were (laughs) staging at the French Laundry. So how did you find yourself wanting to open a bakery where you made these really cool architectural cakes? Well, I started out, uh, I got my first job uh, at McDonald's because I was a graffiti artist and I needed to make enough money to buy spray paint. (laughs) So I got a job like, you know, flipping burgers. And actually, I loved it. I really like McDonald's is a great place to work. And then I kind of, you know, moved through, went all different places. And through um, when I was in college, uh, I started working fine dining. And that's where I like realized there was like a whole world of cooking that I had no idea about. And um, I was like, wow, I can actually do this for a living. Like, you know, really like make a career out of this. So after undergrad, I went to pastry school and yeah, I worked at a bunch of really fancy restaurants. Uh, The other thing was I'm also a musician. So got back to Baltimore, which is where like all my friends from college were who are all musicians. 
And I was like, I want to, I want to be a rock star. I want to see if I can make it. So I uh, got in a band and quit my job so I could focus on music. And so what I did was I started making wedding cakes in my apartment to pay the rent. Right. I was like, well, I can make cakes. I'm good at it. So I was just making cakes for, you know, I got a website and people would buy cakes. It was great. And uh, that was how I paid my rent while I was waiting for my big, you know, multi-million dollar record deal. That Are you still happened. waiting for it? <laughs> I'm still waiting. One of these days, man, I got I got four strings in a dream. All right. I'm I'm, I'm doing it, man. <laughs> that is you should. I mean, you introduce yourselves to people like I'm a musician and I make cakes on the side. I do Food Network on the side. <laughs> It literally, like our whole bakery, uh, so Charm City Cakes in Baltimore, the whole bakery, all of us were like, yeah, we're doing this to like make enough money so we can do all the other things that we do. Half the people that work there were in bands. The other half were pursuing fine arts. And so, you know, they needed a job where they could like make money, uh, you know, because fine art doesn't pay very well. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they were making cakes. They're all incredible artists. So they're great at this stuff. And then they could, you know, sort of finance their careers. And honestly, it's still like that. You know, I know you were kidding where you're like, hey, yeah, I'm on like all these Food Network shows. It's true. I'm on a bunch of Food Network shows. So I can like, I'm a carpenter. Like I've been doing a bunch of woodworking now. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it finances all the other stuff you want to do. That's yeah. awesome. So <laughs> yeah. when you were making the cakes, the wedding cakes from the beginning, were you making classic tiered cakes that people would imagine? When did you shift over to really getting into your own style and making cakes that were super realistic looking, like making mm. cakes that look like other stuff? Yeah, you know, it's funny because like when I first like built a website, I, I just got a bunch of Martha Stewart magazines and I made all those cakes in there put, and took pictures of them, put them on the website. Because it, it's basically like every cake decorator knows like when Martha Stewart Weddings comes out, you just have to learn how to make all the cakes yeah. in there because all the brides are going to come and be like, I want this. But when, you know, you're a small business owner and I'm literally just like I eat what I kill, right? So if I... If I sell a cake, I make money. If I don't sell a cake, I don't. So I never said no. And like somebody came and was like, hey, can you make a cake that looks like my dog? And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll figure it out. You know, <laughs> I had no idea how to do it, but you know, you, you learn. Uh, and so, and that was it. It was just because we would say yes to literally everything. People were like, can you make my car, but like make the, make the headlights work? And I was like, yeah, I'll figure that out. You know, it's not too tough. <laughs> what has been the strangest request in all of these years or the one that you just love the most, the weirdest one? Yeah. Uh, we made one for this guy. So okay, it's kind of creepy, but the, the guy's like this criminal psychiatrist. So, and he works for the government and he's like, he's this super genius psychiatrist that works with like the really Hannibal Lecter style crazy people. And his Halloween cake one year was a vampire in a coffin. Pretty big. It wasn't life size. It was pretty big. And we had built in the chest of the vampire this little pump and it was full of fake blood. And so we also made this like wooden stake. So at the party, he takes the wooden stake, <gasps> you jam it into the vampire, and the blood shot out of its mouth and its eyes and everything. It was it was amazing. <laughs> Did you get to go to the party and see it happen? <laughs> no, no, we saw a video. Yeah, I'm not allowed at parties like that. <laughs> <laughs> Drop the cake up in the back and leave, please. Yeah, yeah, get out of here. Please. Yeah. And then since, I mean, you've made cakes for Obama and Katy Perry. I mean, is this still like you're just doing this on the side to make music? Oh, man. You know what I, we got to do literally last weekend? We were at the Kennedy Space Center uh, in Florida, and we made a cake 
of the Artemis rocket that's about like this weekend is getting shot to the moon and is coming back. And we got to make a cake of that rocket. They pulled the rocket out onto the launch pad because they're, you know, they're getting it ready to shoot it up in the space. And we got permission to drive out to the launch mm-hmm. pad and take a picture of me and the cake and the rocket like all together. And it was just one of those once in a lifetime opportunities that like you really, it makes you stop and just like marvel at your own good fortune, you know, and like really just be thankful for like, like what an incredible amazing experience getting to stand like i love space i'm a huge nerd i love science fiction i love rockets and uh you know just getting to like stand there with this thing and then the thing and just oh it's mind-blowing it was so cool (laughs) did you make any cool blast off noises i feel like you know i don't like to gender stereotype but i feel like guys are better at this it's like (laughs) yeah yeah totally you're way better than me i don't know i can't do it as good (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, let's it's pretend- a lot of like playing when you're when you're a kid and you're like playing GI Joes. You got to be like, Rah, you know, you got to be able to make all the sound effects. I know, and I've tried to do like Arr. that is not good. I needed, I needed, no, no. yeah, I need to stage with you. <laughs> Besides the special effect sounds, there are two other lifelong pursuits I have never been able to accomplish. Number one burping on command. Everybody just says to swallow air and that does not work. I'm going to try it right now. Nothing. And making armpit fart noises, which to be fair, I have done once in the shower, but I want to know how to do it on dry land. I have a feeling that Duff is also excellent at these two things. All right, it's break time. But when we come back, obviously Duff baked his own cakes for his wedding. And obviously one of them had to be a four layer meat cake. He'll tell us all about it after the break. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Paulsbo, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest, and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P, or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. If you like listening to Your Last Meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh available anytime, anywhere at cascadepbs.org or find a link in the show notes.
You had three cakes at your wedding. Uh, <laughs> tell me about these three cakes. Okay, so one of them uh, was really beautiful. It was very tall, elegant, white cake. And I did all the piping on it to look like the lace in my wife's dress. Because, you know, everybody should have like a nice wedding cake to have pictures with. Then I did another cake that was... Uh, my wife and I love to scuba dive and uh, we we love fish. We love underwater things and aquariums and stuff. So uh, I made this like sort of installation where you could walk through it. And it was a bunch of cakes kind of hanging from this big thing. And it was like uh, there were like leafy sea dragons and bubbles and fish. And, wow. Yeah, all kinds of cool stuff. Got married at the Natural History Museum in Los Angeles. We got married right under the T Rex. <laughs> that is so freaking <laughs> cool! Oh my god, yeah, cool. I love that. Yeah, and then we had a we had a petting zoo. <laughs> what? It was great. Yeah, man, it was awesome. I mean, man, I'm telling you, dude, the petting zoo was a hit. Everybody was out there, like, <laughs> play, pet, you know, pet the bunnies and the pig and the baby horse and all that. It was amazing. It was amazing. And so, uh, but then our other cake, our our uh, our our last cake, I guess the groom's cake, but whatever. My wife, it was just another cake. Uh, she loved it. Uh, was made out of meat. So the bottom tier was meatloaf. The next tier was meatballs. The third tier was uh shawarma and the top tier was scrapple and then the whole thing was iced in mashed potatoes and then we made roses out of bacon and like roasted them in the oven and then put the roses all over the cake then the bride and groom were made out of hot dogs and the clothes <laughs> were, were were deli meat so like my wife's like her dress was like sliced turkey my tuxedo was uh salami general salami had a little top hat <laughs> it was really cute and then um we got a chocolate fountain, and uh, instead of putting chocolate in it, we put gravy. So oh. then you get your slice of cake, and then you can stick it in the gravy. Oh, it. my God. And it was God. delicious. And at the end of the night, you know, it's like, I, I, I don't know if you're married, but when you get married, like, you don't get to eat, and uh, you're exhausted, right? At the end of the night, like, you're saying bye to everybody. It's like people that you haven't seen in, you know, 20 years, and then, you're, you know, you're not going to see them for another 20. And, uh, you know, you're saying bye to everybody. At the end of the night, you're, like, exhausted. And they're, like, cleaning up and everything, but the meat cake was still there. So, like, me and my, me and my buddies and my wife were all kind of hanging around the, the meat cake, just grabbing hunks of it and just Handful. shoving it in our mouths because we're so hungry. We're just like, <laughs> arr, arr. yeah, it was great. It was, <laughs> it was fun. Was that something that you... You had thought about for years, you know, if when I get married, I'm going to have this cake. Uh, it's funny story. So I do a lot of like public speaking and, you know, just events where I'm out like talking to people and people ask me like before I got married, they would ask me all the time, like, what's your wedding cake going to look like? And I, I just I I never really had a good answer for that. because I'm like, I don't know. It's going to look like a wedding cake, I guess. And then so I just I tried to make it funny. I was like, yeah, mine's going to be made out of meat. And so, you know, I'd, I'd said it so many times and I like the cake that I made at my wedding is the cake I described to people for years before we got married. I'm like, this is how we're going to do it. And I was getting married. I was like, I mean, I, I got to do it. Yeah. I've been saying for years that this is what I was going to do. So, you know, I'm a man of my word. <laughs> <laughs> I have a similar story, but that is not similar at all, where for years, every time I was going to go swimming with friends, I would just send this text and be like, this is what I'm wearing. And it would be like this bathing suit that looked like I was like a naked man. And then during the pandemic, <laughs> I thought, well, I could just get this bathing suit. And so I ordered it and then I showed up wearing it. It was the same feeling as your meat cake, I feel. It's like, I'm fine. I'm wearing the naked pants. And I have it on my dating profile because I'm trying to weird out or sorry, weed out boring people. I feel like if, yeah, you, if you're going to love me, you got to love this hairy chest and 
these man nipples. Oh man, I love man. That's like I love the follow through. Good for you, man. Thank that's you. Amazing. Wedding cakes have been a part of wedding tradition since the ancient Greeks and Romans were getting married. Let's just say as far back as 500 BC. The earliest forms of cakes were probably not actually cakes. They were cooked over open fires, more like a bread, like a flatbread, usually made with seeds and nuts. That's Claire Stewart, author of As Long As We Both Shall Eat, A History of Wedding Food and Feasts. She's also a culinary arts professor at City University of New York and has catered thousands of weddings. Seeds and rice and fruit have been associated with fertility. So there's ancient stories of brides, for instance, in ancient Rome, having these flatbreads broken over their head, symbolizing the imminent loss of their virginity and also the breaking away of them from their parents to a new life. That's been recorded in many, many different cultures, not just Western culture, but that use of seeds and nuts um, to symbolize fertility. And it wasn't until more recent history where we had access to ovens and leavening agents to make cakes fluffy and to actually be what we would consider cakes. I read that the first recorded wedding cake was in 1685 and that it was called the bride's pie, P-Y-E, pastry filled with oysters, lamb testicles, throat, (laughs) rooster comb, and pine kernels. But that would also go to, again, the idea of fertility, of seeds and nuts and rooster combs. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, intestines. um, That is the thing that you will see across all cultures is that we tend to not think about it in our society, but weddings exist to make our species continue. So when did people start doing more elaborate cakes closer to what we know today? Most people agree that it began or was certainly fanned by Queen Victoria's wedding. This was 1840. Um, She had married Prince Albert and he was German. And there was some uh, fear with the royal family that the public would be kind of sensitive to the fact that this very British queen was marrying somebody who was not British. So the wedding was designed to allay those fears. And one of those good ways to do that was to have a very, very English wedding with a very English wedding cake. And this cake was made with English plums and it had sugar sculptures of Britannia, which is the figure that symbolizes England. And this cake was nine feet around, nine feet in circumference. It was huge. And it was made to be carried around so that the public could actually see it. It wasn't in layers, but it was enormous. So they tried to make sure that as many people as possible could see the cake because you have throngs of people all around wanting to see the cake. So in order for this cake to be carried around, it had to be very heavily coated with this heavy white icing so it wouldn't break open. And that icing is what we know now as royal icing. That was the first time that this very white cake, even though it was not white inside, it was fruit cake, which was very common all the way up until actually almost like the 1950s and 1960s, even the United States was a, considered still a traditional cake was one made of fruit cake. And I think many people would contribute that to the beginning of the so-called white wedding cake that was decorated. Isn't she the one who started the trend of also wearing a white wedding dress? Yes. Yes. I was actually going to say that. I Yes, actually, she did. Um, she was a game changer. The other thing about her is that she and the prince had nine children, which all married royals. 
exactly 18 years later, her eldest daughter was getting married. And so here was Queen Victoria that had had this enormous nine foot cake. The royal family felt there was nowhere to go but up. So her daughter had a cake that was over six feet high. As for Duff's meat cake, Claire says there was definitely a time when people focused on the absurd and extravagant. When people were so wealthy, particularly these royal families, they had chef after chef that created food that was entirely made as spectacle. And you would crack open, for instance, something that looked like a pie and a dove would fly out or a peacock. There's even ones that have been made so big that like a dwarf came out carrying a cake. There's all these crazy stories of just amazing conspicuous consumption. But it was actually a spectacle. And the poor people would either pay or vie and push in line to actually watch people eat. And if you were lucky when they were all done, they would take what was left over and give it to the people that were waiting. So the spectacle of of cakes uh, has been a way to glamorize the act of eating um, for many, many years. And I thought it was very interesting as a famous chef, Karem, who was kind of next to Escoffier, considered the father of, of classical cuisine. And I think it's very interesting that he actually he studied architecture before he became a chef. And I think that 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 connection between the artistry along with the actual mechanics of how do you make this thing, I'm sure Duff Goldman is an expert on, is not just how it tastes, it's how is it going to come together and hold up and you need to know some physics there and some mechanics and some engineering. Like me, Claire was delighted by Duff's meat cake. Now in modern weddings, it's a kind of a new tradition, I guess, of coming up with something that's unique to the bride and the groom, whether it's the meat cake or, for instance, my niece, her cake was cheese. (laughs) Um, Tell me more. Tell me more. Yes, it was wonderful. My niece got married uh, outside London and she and her husband are both cheese freaks, (laughs) self-described, and their wedding cake was the great big round bottom layer of blue cheese. And then on top of that, a great big round layer of sharp cheddar going all the way up to the top. And it was served with amazing beer and crackers and pieces of bread. And they sliced it like a cake and there was flowers on it and it was beautiful, but it was a lot of fun and it was unique to them. It was one of the things that they enjoyed doing was going to classes on cheese tasting and everybody loved it. And they still had sweets for people that wanted sweets. But I've also seen cakes made of, you know, stacked waffles or stacked donuts. Um, I think that, yeah, I think that's a lot of fun. Uh, But it is interesting that people, no matter how much they push the boundaries of what they are doing with their cake, they still want a cake. So many wedding traditions have been cast aside and many for good reason, but the cake still endures. And I just recently read a poll that still 85% of people who attend weddings, they still want to see the cutting of the cake. And that goes behind wanting an open bar or signature cocktails, which I think is, (laughs) is very indicative that people do like to watch the cake being cut. There was a several year long period where none of the weddings I went to served traditional cake. I had paletas, which are Mexican popsicles, homemade ice cream sandwiches. Those were so good. Uh, A long time ago, I went to a camping wedding that served a bunch of local pies. There have been donuts. And of course, there was the seemingly never ending cupcake trend. 
And at Duff's wedding, there was one other dessert besides the three wedding cakes. At the wedding, we had a cookie table. All the guests, everybody had to bring like two dozen cookies. We wanted everybody to like make them. But I was like, look, if you, you know, you can't make cookies, like bring some Oreos or whatever. Yeah. Just bring cookies. So everybody brought cookies. It was like 250 people there. And we had this huge table lined up. And so everybody put their cookies on the table. So we had this mountain of cookies. And then everybody leaving would, would take whatever they wanted, right? So you'd, you'd grab some cookies. And that was actually after the meat cake. When my wife and I got back to the hotel, that was literally the only thing we had to eat. It was a huge bag of cookies. Of cookies. Yeah. You're like, yeah. sex on our wedding night? No, meat cake and billions of cookies. Meat cake meat and cake. cookies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Claire says asking guests to bring sweets to a wedding used to be super common. So many cultures, including our cultures, the cake was a community effort. The wedding was a community effort. Everybody was invited if you lived in the town or the community. And most people didn't have the resources to feed all those people. So, for instance, there was a tradition of stack cakes in the American West. Each family would bring a little cake that they had made. And then somebody would have some applesauce and they would stack them. And then you would have a cake that actually was high and looked official and ceremonial without one family having to provide this enormous cake to give to everybody. My friend, um, when she got married, they had this really cool wedding at a summer camp and we all slept in the cabins. And that's what they asked certain people. They said, this will be your wedding gift to us. Bring a dessert. It doesn't have to be a cake. And so, yeah, the dessert table was just, you know, these things that were baked with love and, and things that people felt proud of or that represented the couple. And so, you know, you had everything from pie and brownies and cakes. And I thought that was really sweet. I agree. I think that's very nice. And there is uh, something to be said for giving something that somebody made with love and then sharing with everybody else instead of giving all the money to a commercial entity, which is good too. Everybody wants the big fun cake, but it's nice that there's still some remnants of everybody pitching in as well with their labor rather than just throwing money at it. I also read that there used to be a tradition of uh you know, instead of throwing the bouquet and then you'd be next to Mary, that some single women, after they'd go to a wedding, they would sleep with the wedding cake under their pillow so that they would hope to dream of their future partner. Yes, I love that. That became business to sell the little boxes that little piece of cake could go into and then put under the so-called old maid's pillow so she could dream of her future groom. Claire says the tradition of couples smashing cake into each other's faces is pretty recent. She guesses maybe the 1980s. But the cake cutting tradition is far older. It's all the way up until about 1900. The bride cut the cake herself, serve her husband first, and then cut little pieces for her guests. And this was uh, indicative of her role now as the family cook. And that started to change with the advent of the commercialism of weddings and with wedding photographers. And to just have the bride cutting the cake by herself wasn't appropriate for photo albums. So photographers started instructing the men to be in the picture. But a lot of literature actually traces that cutting of the cake going back to the imminent loss of the bride's virginity and this new role of her being cut, taken away from her original family. And it's been orchestrated or the wedding paid for by the bride's father, meaning um, this is sanctioned. This is a new beginning for the bride and for the groom. 
and the bride's family approves of it. And the cutting of the cake is the official act of we are married now. When we come back, Duff Goldman shares his last meal, and he talks about how having a little daughter made him love cooking even more. The show is called Your Last Meal. What would your last meal be? Mm-mm. Everything my mom makes, everything, everything, you know, yeah, like to like, you know, probably like Passover Seder, I guess is probably a good one because that way I'm getting brisket, uh, I'm getting haroset, I'm getting uh, gefilte fish, I'm getting, you know, just all those foods. I mean, I just, uh, pat the, the Seder, the Passover Seder, one of my favorite meals, but, but seriously, just anything my mom makes. She makes this jello that uh, she, she makes a port cherry jello. And then uh, she gets a bunch of cherries and stuffs them with roasted walnuts and then makes the jello and suspends the cherries in the jello. It's so good. Her brisket's amazing. Her brisket, it's it's the best one I've ever tasted. And I'm like being objective. Like, I mean, every Jewish boy says his mom makes the best brisket. (laughs) Seriously, my mom's is the best I've ever tasted. It's so it's so great. I'm so um, interested yeah. that you had a jello salad, jello casserole, because I'm Jewish as well. And my mom would never make that. And she was just like, oh, that's like weird Midwestern food. And I just thought that Jews didn't eat jello casseroles, <laughs> jello. Sal- I thought we weren't allowed. My mom's from Kansas. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> so- All right. There it goes. Yeah. <laughs> but now, so one of the weird things, though, is that a lot of our recipes. Uh, are uh, like kind of Sephardic. So hmm. my my great grandmother came from Ukraine, from Moldova. You know, Eastern European cooking, but a lot of her recipes are kind of Sephardic. So hmm. I don't know if she knew anybody. Like maybe she knew some Sephardic people in Moldova, hmm. or I don't know what it was. But like we picked up a lot of kind of you know more you know Middle Eastern, and uh, we have some interesting flavors in our in our family recipes. And actually, the last Seder, last Passover. Uh, I did the whole thing with Sephardic. I did like all this crazy Middle Eastern food. It was so mm. good, man. And it was really, it was nice. I dug it. What were some of the things you made? I think a lot of people aren't familiar with Sephardic cooking, which I know here in Seattle, we have a little bit of a bigger Sephardic community. And mm. they're always a little bit upset that the Ashkenazi food gets the representation. You know, people think Jewish food, they think of matzo ball soup and gefilte. And, and people don't really know a lot of those dishes. Yeah. So, you know, Sephardic dishes are more like Middle Eastern, um, a little bit Spanish. Mm-hmm. You know, they're uh, they're just the Eastern European food. It's the food of like poor people in tenement houses in Europe and tenement houses in New York. Mm-hmm. Right. And that is like the, the that Ashkenazi cooking, like like brisket used to be a, a cheap cut of meat. Right. Because it takes a long time to cook. Um, and so that was the meat that Jews have because we didn't have a lot of money. So it was like, all right, well, you know, I can't afford top sirloin. I can't afford ribeyes. I can afford a brisket. So let me figure out how to make this taste good. And so they did, um, you know, and that's what, you know, like matzo balls are really cheap. It's just flour and chicken fat. Yeah. Yeah. And so Sephardic cooking, it's just got a lot more spices to it. It's it's just from a more tropical place. 
Um, so some like some of the dishes I made, I made these little tiny spicy sesame meatballs. Mm. Um, you know, just like dishes like that that were just like these really cool little thin potato pancakes that were like really it wasn't a latka, it was something different. They were mm, they were really good. Had a little cumin and fenugreek in it. For his last meal, Duff Goldman wants everything his mom makes. More specifically, her Passover Seder menu. Brisket, charoset, which in my house is a puree of apples and walnuts mixed with cinnamon, red wine, and honey, and gefilte fish. I make really good gefilte fish. It's like breaded and fried. It's like, it's all chefed up. You fry your gefilte fish? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My my (laughs) gefilte fish is like... It's almost like chicken fingers at this point. It's so good. Yeah, <laughs> you so dip good. it into ranch. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, my wife eats so much ranch. She's from Oklahoma. Casserole coming out the wazoo, man. <laughs> dip it in a little maror. <laughs> <laughs> man, I love maror. I do. I love it. I just, I all the flavors of that sandwich, like even the like the the parsley and the salt water is such a vibe, right? Totally. It's such a flavor. Uh, you know, it's a very specific thing that I think as Jews, when we it's, when you taste parsley and salt water together, you are instantly like yeah. six years old. You know, yeah, it's it really is cool. So nostalgic. Anytime I have any parsley, I think of, oh, it's Passover. It has that flavor. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I love having non-Jewish people at my Seder, which I do every year, because when you grow up, you're so used to that story and the food. And then when you have to tell someone about it, suddenly it all seems insane. Like it's so depressing. It's like. Yeah, the salt water represents the tears the Jews cried when we were slaves in Israel. The Harosid, it's the mortar when the Jews were slaves. And I'm like, Jesus. Like, I'd never yeah. really heard it that way until I was telling outsiders about it. Yeah. Old Testament's some dark stuff, man. Yeah. Some dark, dark chapters. For those who don't know, Maror is horseradish. And I misspoke during that last little cut. I meant to say that the Jews were slaves in Egypt, not in Israel. <laughs> Duff has a new cookbook out. It's called Super Good Cookies for Kids. They're not dumbed down recipes. Like these are all the recipes that I use. These are my cookie recipes. It's designed to get people in the kitchen cooking together. You know, when parents are cooking with their kids, I mean, those memories, like, you know, those are vivid memories. You know, hopefully, you know, you will then create these memories for your children and teach them your family recipes and teach them how to survive and how to cook for themselves. And, you know, just teach them to love food and you know love to love to eat and have a nice sort of like positive relationship with food that mm. i think a lot of people today don't have you know well you have a cute little daughter what is like the family recipe that you would pass down to her uh well when she was 3 days old her mom my wife was uh, upstairs recuperating and sleeping and my wife loves chili she's from the midwest and so I was making a big pot of Texas chili. So I put Josephine in her car seat, put the car seat on the counter, and we made chili together. You know, thankfully my wife was like sleeping because like she was literally on the counter and like right next to her is this the giant stock pot of yeah, you know, big gas flame. Yeah, everything. Like, Did you use her leg whatever. to she stir was... the chili around instead of a wooden spoon? <laughs> I mean, I put her on my shoulder, you know. I'm, I cook and like, you know, things are boiling and steaming and cooking and she wants to see what's going on. And I always like pick her up and I show her mm-hmm. and yeah, she loves it. I actually dedicated this book to her. I said, I, th- I think it's something like uh, we're going to bake so many cookies together. I think is what I said. Yeah. It's really, it's really beautiful. And that was Duff Goldman's last meal. 
Make sure and pick up his new cookbook, Super Good Cookies for Kids. You can also order one of his cakes on Gold Belly and see him on several Food Network shows, including Kids Baking Championship that he hosts and judges with past Your Last Meal guest, Valerie Bertinelli. Duff, it was so fun talking to you. This was a real treat. You're so much fun, and it was lovely meeting you. Yeah, you too. This was really fun. Thanks. And uh, yeah, congratulations on your new book. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you. Cheers. All right. Bye. See you soon. Thanks to Christine Ross, director of the Sandwich Massachusetts Chamber of Commerce, and Dale Cox, historian in Two Egg, Florida. Thanks to Claire Stewart. You can pick up her book, As Long As We Both Shall Eat, A History of Wedding Food and Feasts. You can find a link to her website in the show notes. Claire says when she was in culinary school, she catered a wedding where they had an outside bakery do the cake. And that bakery misspelled the names of the bride and groom. The bride and groom were very gracious. We ended up covering it with flowers and just not having their name on it. It was kind of funny that they wanted their names on it anyway. I think in the long run, we did them a favor. (laughs) I know that is kind of like something you do at a six-year-old's birthday party. Yes, yes, exactly. I think that was kind of their vibe. (laughs) They had a six-year-old birthday party wedding theme. (laughs) A couple of clowns. Yeah, unicorns. That's so funny. (laughs) Your Last Meal is a Slide Down the Dinosaur media production. This episode was produced, edited, and created by me. Theme music by Prom Queen. This show is now an independent production. So if you're feeling generous and you would like to donate to keep the show going, I would love you forever. And you can do that through my newsletter, rachelbell.substack.com. There's a link in the show notes. But otherwise, that newsletter is free. And that is where I'll alert you to fun things like cooking classes. I recently taught a potato latke cooking class on Zoom for Hanukkah, and I plan on teaching a matzo ball soup class in a couple months. The newsletter is also the only place where you'll find details on giveaways, like the cookbook giveaway I did about a month ago. If you like the show, please tell a friend and rate and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. These reviews actually really do help get the show into more people's ears. And last but not least, you can follow along on Instagram. I'm Hello Rachel Bell. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal.